four, three, two. For God's sake, what now? the Mad Max Minute, and damn it, we told you, no more embargoes, because we're watching Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 21, which begins with Master declaring an embargo, and it ends with Blaster turning on the dark. That's a thing, right? The phrase turn on the dark? That's what I was thinking about. Isn't that like the name of an album or something? Is it? Was it the Spider-Man musical? Is is oh. that where I thought of it? Oh my right. gosh, am I making a reference to that Hold awful up. Spider-Man musical? Into the dark? Turn off the dark? Okay. Okay, I'm... Okay, in my defense, it was a bad reference because... It is actually Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, which was the awful stage show that got a ton of people hurt. Yep. I don't know. It might also be from a Shel Silverstein poem about a bat who's afraid of the light, who shouts, turn on the dark, I'm afraid of the light, or something like that. Oh, we're going to go with that one, because yeah. it's better. I, I feel like quoting Shel Silverstein gives me a bit more credibility than... <laughs> Making fun of a Broadway show. Yes. I had a lot of Shel Silverstein books when I was growing up. I never really got into him. It's just goofy poetry. You know, fun poetry. Not yeah. like feelings poetry. Oh, heaven forbid children <laughs> feel feelings. What do you think this is? Dead Poet Society? We're not supposed to appreciate poetry here. <laughs> the only poetry we're supposed to appreciate is the poetry of violence. <laughs> Uh, the music of destruction, the poetry of violence. <laughs> so speaking of violence, Max is being held by Blaster, but not in a tender way. He's holding him about the neck and Max just delivered a sick burn in response to Master's statement saying that he was a fairy princess. And so Master, throwing all of his weight around, leans back in his chair, raises his arms to the sky and yells, Embargo on! And... I don't know if I'm alarmed or satisfied by the fact that he takes so quickly the bait that Max is trolling with. Hook, line, and sinker. Flies off the handle, as it were. Yeah, this definitely feels like Master's having a little temper tantrum. Oh, yeah. And if I were Auntie, I would just leave him in the aisle in the store, on the floor, kicking and screaming. Mm -hmm. I would just walk away. The trouble is, this toddler to go with your metaphor, is sitting next to the power switch for your whole house. And if he doesn't get his way, if he doesn't get that cookie that he wants, he's going to pull the kill switch and all of your electricity is going to go away. That's an incredible amount of power to place in the hands of someone who is just so insecure that they need to throw their weight around like this. Yeah. I'm starting to really understand why Andy wants this guy brought low. Yes, and I definitely have thoughts and feelings on this subject that would be better for next minute or two's conversation. So yeah. I'll kind of hold back a little bit on that. Okay. In the meantime, I looked up embargo on dictionary.com. It is a noun. If you want to pluralize it, it is embargoes. It has multiple definitions, more or less all revolving around a common theme. 
the first being an order of a government prohibiting the movement of merchant ships into or out of its ports, the second one being an injunction from a government commerce agency to refuse freight or shipment as in case of congestion or insufficient facilities, number three, any restriction imposed upon commerce by edict, which is definitely the one we're dealing with in this situation, but dictionary.com continues saying a restraint or hindrance, a prohibition, is the last noun definition of embargo. It can also be used as a verb, used with an object, which basically shakes out to it being the imposition of an embargo. So if you say, I'm going to embargo rubber duckies, you have prohibited the movement of rubber duckies into your commercial system. Okay. It gives a short origin of the word. Apparently it is from somewhere between 1595 and 1605. Spanish in origin derived from embargar, which means to hinder. That is not how you pronounce it, by the way, because I said it with a very Americanized accent. If I said it with a Spanish accent, it would probably sound better, but it doesn't matter. So like I said, it's derivative of that word that I said, embar embargar. I don't know, burger, which means to hinder or embarrass. And so that's what it is. I didn't wrap that one up nicely, but. I like that it's derived from a word that means to hinder or embarrass because Master specifically uses this embargo to embarrass Auntie. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't know any better, I would think that Master knew the connection between Max and Auntie. He seems to jump from his confrontation with Max to having a confrontation with Auntie remarkably quickly that would lead one to believe that they are connected, which we know that they're connected. But Master Blaster is not supposed to know that, and I don't think he does. No. He just jumps to the correct conclusions. <laughs> I am willing to bet that Master declares this embargo, and we're going to see him and Auntie interact later on in this minute specifically. But Master knows that when people come into Barter Town, all of the signage and propaganda basically says, Auntie's in charge. And then they come down here to Underworld, and they throw that in his face. And so it's his opportunity to turn around and be like, oh, hey, you know all that stuff you saw up on the surface? Not the case. And I'm going to show you how. From the shot where Master declares an embargo, we get a quick cutaway to this dude sitting over by a vehicle. And we saw him in Wednesday's Minute. Just kind of like passively grinning or something like that. Yeah, I actually had a note on him that I didn't get to. He's not doing anything. Oh, yeah. This is a place of work. Whether you are there as a punishment or you are there for payment, this is a place of work. It is underworld. It's not a pleasant place. It is smelly and dirty. And even in the mechanic shop, it's still going to be smelly and dirty. This is not a place that you just sit around watching the world go by. Mm -hmm. But this one, I'm assuming he's a mechanic because he was sitting by a car. Yeah. Just sitting there doing nothing. And he's still sitting there doing nothing. And he's all bummed that the embargo is on and the power is going to go out. And I'm thinking, why do you care? You're not doing anything. It's funny you should mention that because I saw the change in his expression as more of a, oh no, he's flying off the handle again. As if the best kind of mood you want Master Blaster to be in is just content. You want them to just be happy and walking around because that means they're not bothering you. If Master Blaster get agitated and start declaring embargoes and stomping around and looking for something to hit, that's not a good situation. 
situation to be in. So I understand that sort of dropped smirk. Yeah, I definitely see what you mean. Being that kind of reflection there. So. Yes. Flying under the radar is not only contingent upon you not drawing attention to yourself, it's contingent upon the person of authority not looking at you too hard. Yeah. And when they're upset, <laughs> they're going to start looking at things hard. Luckily for the other mechanics in the area, Master is not concerned with them. He's more concerned with showing Max just how much power he has. So we get a nice sweeping shot of the workshop as we move up to the platform, and we can hear these shouts coming from Master. He's declaring, you know, change this setting, turn this off, turn this on. You know, he's making it sound like there are a lot more steps to an embargo than just turning one valve. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I would expect that there are way more steps to shutting off the power than turning one valve. Mm -hmm. And the workers seem not just the guy we were just talking about, but the other workers in Underworld seem very concerned with the idea of an embargo, as if they know it's going to cause trouble. Yes, and if it's a prolonged embargo, if they're there voluntarily, if they're getting paid, if there's an embargo, they're not going to be getting paid anymore. Mm -hmm. So... And if it's a prolonged embargo, there are guards in Underworld that are loyal to Auntie that keep an eye on the prisoners. And how long do you think it is before those guards start to get antsy? Yes. So the possibility of retribution is very real but everyone is standing by for now because it's still very fresh this idea of an embargo and it becomes quite obvious that this is a repeated event mm -hmm. but i'm not sure we really get an idea of the duration of past embargoes i mean is this going to be a five minute thing is this going to be a day is it going to be three days yeah we have no idea the history of the duration of the embargoes how just that they happen how often do you think master pulls this type of crap based on auntie's desire to eliminate blaster and the arrogance of master I would say at least once every three or four days. Oh, that is frequent. Yes. And it also seems like Auntie has been searching for a warrior for a bit of time. Yeah. And maybe Max isn't the first one who she has arranged to go into Thunderdome. There may have been others who failed. That's a good point. There's a comment somewhere along the way that Blaster has gone to Thunderdome before and always is the one that comes out. Yeah. Now, Auntie did make that comment about you're the first to survive the audition, but maybe that's just because she decided to start auditioning her warriors because you can send 20 men into Thunderdome and only Blaster's going to come out because he's just a giant. Right. Maybe it's come to the point of auditions because the more casual people she sent in there failed so gloriously. Yeah. <laughs> there's the potential for an awful lot of history here mm -hmm. a lot of blood on those big old mitts yeah you do get the sense that we are definitely coming in in the middle of this story which you know that's just how max does things he doesn't come in at the beginning he comes in right at the middle which is interesting because this part of the story only takes up half the movie right <laughs> <laughs> Maybe oh. if we had come in closer to the beginning of this story, it would have taken the whole movie to get through it. Oh, I would not mind having the entirety of this movie just be Barter Town stuff. Because, oh. Having Thunderdome be the climax of the movie. Just looking forward to what we have ahead in the movie. 
I groan a little bit. I don't. Okay, I know that when I watched with you Thunderdome for the first time in quite some time, I didn't remember the whole second half of the movie about the waiting ones. Yeah, you forgot about everything beyond Thunderdome. I did, I it's did. It's the title of the movie. <laughs> and I was going crazy. I'm like, what the heck is this? This movie is crazy town banana pants. But since then, it has really, really grown on me, especially from an analysis point of view that I cannot wait to dive into them. Okay, good. <laughs> and just rip them apart. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. <laughs> just to analyze the crap out of them. Right. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> Master Blaster, they are dragging Max around Underworld, and they finally get to one position in particular. Master yells, Embargo on, main valve off. And so we get to see Blaster grab a hold of this giant valve and start turning. And we cut up to the entry tunnel where the collector is sitting. And there's one guard in particular standing next to an electric light. And as it starts to flicker and dim, they get this really concerned look on their face and they turn to another guard and we pan over to see the collector and the lights just dim around him. And not only do the lights dim, but there's this big old noise that echoes through this entry hall, almost like a giant engine slowing down. And I'm pretty sure it's just for effect. I don't think it's diegetic or anything like that. I think it's just a movie sound effect that makes it sound bigger than it actually would be. But you can definitely tell that these guards are concerned for their situation because they're about to be plunged into the dark with a gigantic line of people that are very interested in getting outside. Ooh. Oh, I did not think about that. Huh. So it's going to be the job of these guards to make sure that no one sneaks by them. Like, yes, everyone needs to evacuate the tunnel, but they need to do it in the out direction, not the in direction. Yeah. But the people who have already made their deal can go in the in direction. Yeah, making the distinction of who paid and That's who hasn't. chaos. It's going to be very difficult in the dark. In the dark. And, and we've already been through the marker of distinction between who has and who hasn't struck their deal yet yeah and these people that are waiting in line they're not a patient sort they get really upset when they're delayed in any way so you can bet there's probably going to be a couple of rabble rousers that are going to be rather upset and there's no weapon check before this point no so there's they... a definite possibility for violence yes many of them are armed so that's the entry tunnel that's a whole different thing from the next shot we get up in Auntie's penthouse. And you hear that whole powering down sound effect, but you also see that her ceiling fan is starting to slow. And we pan down over to look at Auntie, who's sitting next to this little fireplace thing, probably boiling some water or something like that. But she turns and we get to see her in profile. And you can tell that she immediately knows what's going on. This is not her first embargo. Oh, that glare. Oh. I don't ever want Tina Turner to look at me that way. She is so done with this, and it's barely started. Yeah. <laughs> so I had some thoughts about the fire. Yeah. That she is sitting in front of. I had some thoughts about what purpose the fire might be serving. Yeah. She could be cooking. She could be using it for warmth, or it could just be as a luxury. I think it's worth noting that as the power is going out, it looks like she's not really using a lot of power. She's got the ceiling fan, but that's the only thing we see going out. Yeah. She doesn't have a lot of lights on yeah. in this situation. Yeah. That also made me wonder about her daily life. 
we got to see the penthouse in the context of her inviting an outsider in to audition for this very important deal. That was very out of the ordinary. She was out to impress, offering fruit and fresh water. Does she usually get fresh fruit? Does she usually get clean water? What's her normal day-to-day like? Oh, I'm pretty sure she always gets first pick at fruit and water and things like that. She's literally at the highest point in that settlement. She is top dog. So as top dog, and as someone who gets fresh fruit and fresh water, makes me wonder, does she have any servants? Well, I would assume every guard is also a bit of a servant. Well, no, not, no, I don't think so. A guard is a guard. A guard has a job and it's to be a guard. I think this might be a male-female thing. When you think of a servant, I think you think of a different type of person than I think of. Yeah. I think, when I think of a servant, like, and especially like a personal servant, someone who is there to take care of me, I think of someone who is going to cook for me and clean for me and do my clothes and dress me and do my hair and... All of those like personal things that the wealthy don't have to do for themselves anymore. Somebody does it for them. We're definitely looking at this in two different directions. In two different ways. I'm I'm hearing servant and I'm thinking lackey. Right. Like a gopher or a fetch boy type of thing. Right. And I think the guards probably do behave in that way, but they don't cook for her. They don't mend her clothes. Yeah. They don't do her hair or make sure she has makeup to put on and nice jewelry to wear. We don't see anybody like this. There is nobody around except Auntie and the guards. So I don't think she has any servants. I think that that fire, I think she's cooking herself dinner. Now, that made me think of other things. Okay. Why is she cooking over a fire? If she has the best of everything because she is top dog, why doesn't she have cooking devices driven by electricity? And I think that it's because... The methane plant that they've built, I'm not sure it's got the chops for those kinds of appliances. Like it's generating electricity, but it's not doing it super efficiently. Yes. I looked up how electricity consumption is divided in just a standard household. Yeah. Only 12% goes for lighting. Oh. Light bulbs are easy. They don't take up that much energy. Now, that was in 2013, so different kind of light bulbs, more efficient light bulbs than back in 1985, so a little loose on the percentages. Yeah. But appliances and electronics account for 29%, and then heating and air conditioning accounts for 26%. So those two things are big energy suckers. Yeah. So using a fire for cooking and heat, she's saving a lot of electricity. Hmm. Because I'm not sure the methane plant can keep up to that. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Plus, I mean, where are you going to find a working microwave in the post-apocalypse? Well, I think it's more likely to have a functioning oven. <laughs> like an electric coil oven? Well, probably a gas oven. You know, like our oven is a gas oven. Yes. Plus, if there was a microwave, someone probably would have tried to turn it into a gun. <laughs> probably. <laughs> you find a lot of microwave guns in the Fallout game. At least in Fallout 4, you like little radiation launchers, but that's a whole other thing. In fact, I'm still thinking about this oven thing. So our oven and our stove, for that matter, they work when the power is out. Yeah. They do not need electricity. The only thing they need is the spark starter, mm-hmm. which we can do with a match. Yep. So they don't even have to process the methane into electricity to use it to cook with. Yeah. So why aren't they doing that? 
I don't know. Which I think they are in the Atomic Diner. I think, oh, I can't remember. But I seem to remember that the Atomic Cafe does sell hot food. Now, do you think this little fire in the penthouse is burning wood or debris? Or do you think it's just a gas stove? Maybe it is a gas stove. That would make the most sense. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen the landscape around. Yeah, where are you going to find wood to burn? Yeah. Wood's precious in that sort of situation. Yeah, in all likelihood, it's a sort of clay oven with gas fed into it. Yeah. So kind of in between my theory and not my theory. More or less. Yeah. We transitioned from Auntie's penthouse to what is essentially the opposite of the penthouse because we go back down into Underworld and Master is standing in front of an intercom just waiting for Auntie to call. And he is so unbelievably smug. I mean, he's sitting there and he's counting down four, three, two, and then... Before he even gets to one, Auntie is there on the radio asking him what's going on. It's becoming really easy not to like him. Yes, it is. At the tail end of this week, yeah, I do not like Master one bit, and I'm totally on board with Max kicking this guy's butt. And... As unlikable as Master is in this minute and in the previous few minutes that we've spent with him, it's going to get worse. Oh, yeah. Next week is absolutely worse. (laughs) Yeah. Now, at this point, I would not call Master an antagonist. I see him as a guy with a chip on his shoulder with something to prove. But the more I thought about this idea of antagonists in Beyond Thunderdome, I think I started to realize why there are a lot of people who don't see this as a good entry in the series because it lacks a clear and compelling villain character. There's no one like Toe Cutter. There's no one like Humongous. There's no one like Immortan Joe in this movie. No, those three villains were so clearly villains. And especially Toe Cutter. Toe Cutter's gonna always be one of my favorite villains. He was just... So charismatic and over the top and you just wanted to watch him. And I would have been happy if the entire movie was just him hanging around and being the toe cutter. Yeah. (laughs) Master, you're right. It's really hard to label him as an antagonist or as a villain. I would say right now he is fulfilling some of the roles that a villain would fill. Yeah. He is providing negativity. <laughs> he is <laughs> he is contributing to conflict and he's helping to move the story forward towards more conflict. Yeah. And he's not going to do that for the entire movie. No, no, no. I feel like Beyond Thunderdome is the story of two villain characters that are fighting against each other. This isn't a Humongous and Papagallo situation where one of them is clearly in the right and one of them is clearly in the wrong. There are a lot more shades of gray in this movie, and I think that's why I like it. I like that it's not very well defined who is correct in this situation. It's not like, oh, well, you know, Toe Cutter is running drugs and terrorizing people, and Fifi wants to give people back their heroes. It's very easy to see who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. I don't want to come right out and say that there are good points on either side, that there's no wrong answer, It's just people going about situations in a wrong way. And really, when you look at Master and when you look at Auntie, they're both antagonizing each other. They're poking at each other and just testing limits. And Max is the boiling point. He's the straw that breaks this camel's back. 
Yeah, I think the best way to describe it is Auntie and Master are each other's antagonists. Yes. And I that's the structure. It's hard to say beyond that because you're right. Right now, this week and next week, it is easy to say, okay, Master's the villain because he's acting oh, yeah. like a jerk. Oh, gosh, yes. But things change and things happen that you can no longer say that. It's so hard to define. Yeah. Master Blaster is kind of like the bumble in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the stop motion Christmas movie. You pull those teeth out and he's just a bumble, you know? He's no longer terrifying. Right. Which is... Partly what Auntie is going for. Oh, yeah. She wants to (laughs) Yukon Cornelius, her (laughs) rival. (laughs) No, that's not the right phrasing. She is looking for a Yukon Cornelius to take care of her rival. There we go. Yeah. We're bringing it back around to Christmas (laughs) in May. (laughs) Too bad this isn't coming out in July. I know, right? I guess we staggered things wrong. I don't know. Oh, making all my up. Making all my references in the wrong time of year. Anyway, Blaster was sitting at the intercom. He was counting down. And Auntie comes on the radio and says, oh, what now? What could it possibly be now? And Master says one of the most iconic lines from this movie. He says, who run Barter Town? I don't want to get too deep into the different interpretations of this question or the deep-seated meanings that it could possess because I feel like we're going to have a lot of time next week to talk about it. Yes, we are. But I just love how iconic it is. If you're in a situation where someone's like, okay, Quote a line from a movie, and I'll try and guess what it is. If you say, two men enter, one man leave, or who runs Barter Town, they're going to guess this movie because it's just so iconic. Yes. Love it. And Auntie is so unwilling to play this game. She says, damn it, I told you, no more embargoes. And... I imagine that if Auntie stopped for a moment and thought about Max and how he wanted to go down to Underworld, and he must have done something to pester Master and make him upset, I think she's more focused on dealing with Master at this moment, but I think if she stopped for a moment and thought about it, she'd be like, dang it, why did I let him go down there? Because now I've got another embargo to take care of. Yeah, And this embargo doesn't even really further Max's plans on eventually getting into Thunderdome with Blaster. Exactly. It's just confirming what he already saw. Yeah. Master reaches down, taps on Blaster's helmet and says, more Blaster. And we get this nice shot of Blaster's hands on the wheel, turning the valve. And he doesn't really even turn it that much further. It's just a tiny bit more. So it was basically off to begin with. But past Blaster's hands, we get to see Max and he's sitting there just observing everything, keeping a very close eye on how this is shaking out. It's interesting that for Blaster to turn off the valve, he had to release Max. So Max is... Standing there willingly? Yes. Yeah. He could use this moment to try and run away, but it's almost like a subconscious agreement between Max and Master that 
Master is saying to Max, you discount my power. Well, let's go look at how much power I have. We're yeah. going to go together and we're going to see how much power I have. And Max is like, okay, I'm going to stand here and see how much power you have. <laughs> An unspoken agreement that they are both going to witness this act together. Makes sense. Yeah. And that's really where we leave off with Blaster shutting that valve off completely. And when we come back... On Monday, we're going to see Master continue to egg on Auntie. But between now and then, we've got our episode of Anarchy Road coming up. We're in week seven of Hook. Peter's going to get drunk and hang out in the kids' room, which is always a good choice. I don't know. Julia Roberts is going to show up, showing off her pixie cut. And Maggie's homemade parachute is going to be put to good use as part of a apparent Freudian hallucination. All right. That'll be fun to talk about. So we will get to talk about Tinkerbell's legs. Yeah, here we go. Excellent. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link thank you for joining us for minute 21 of beyond thunderdome see you next time oh,